How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein. I'm pleased to be joined in conversation by Rick Atkinson the best-selling and prize-winning author of the Liberation Trilogy and the In-Progress Revolution Trilogy. Today, we are going to discuss the Liberation Trilogy, a narrative history of World War II, Europe from 1942 to 1945. Rick, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, David. Pleased to be here. Now, Rick, you've become, uh, as a Washington Post journalist and now as a New York Times best-selling author, the nation's leading chronicler of military activities and the complications involved in war. How did you get interested in this area? Uh, You know, I'm an Army brat. My father was an infantry officer, enlisted in 1942, uh, came back from Europe in 1946, uh, went to college and then went back into the Army. So I I grew up in the military, which I think fed my native interest in it. And then as a newspaper reporter, including at the Washington Post, I I think partly because I, I spoke militaries, I was often assigned military-related stories. I was a war correspondent. I was in places like Somalia and Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other uh, nasty places. So I made the leap from journalism to the larger, wider, longer lens of writing military history. And I'm now working on, on book number eight, all about American wars. Well, sadly, we've had a lot of wars, but uh, I guess there's a lot of material for you to cover then. Uh, It's true. And I have typically written about our more recent wars, uh, World War II, through the conflicts in in Iraq. Most recently, uh, going back to the 18th century, where it all began, because I'm interested in the origins of our national military. And I'm interested in the, the seedbed that gave us the military that eventually was so uh, instrumental in, in winning World War II, for example. So a trilogy can be very daunting to do. How many years did the project on World War II, the Liberation Trilogy, take you? How many pages did you ultimately write? And how many did your editors actually cut? And do you ever think that maybe you shouldn't have taken on a trilogy when you were in the middle of doing it? <laughs> yeah, that occurred to me once or twice. Uh, I started in earnest in 1999. The third and final book was published in 2013, so about 14 years. Uh, There's 750,000 words in those three volumes. I have to say that virtually none of it was cut by my editor. John Sterling was the editor of all three of these books, maybe to a fault. But the idea of writing epic with a big canvas of writing a three-volume story that is a story with the same characters in all three volumes, some of whom uh, you know well, like Eisenhower and Patton and so on, others of whom have been lost to history or much more obscure. And that bardic voice is something that I was looking for from the very beginning. 
We've recently seen combat uh, again in Europe, in Ukraine, 75 years after World War II. How did what you saw from afar in Ukraine differ from the type of combat techniques and weaponry you wrote about in your trilogy, or was it not all that different? There's a lot of similarities in the high-intensity war that we've seen unfolding in uh, Ukraine for more than a year and a half now, and World War II. Obviously, the magnitude of World War II, where you have 60 million dead globally, uh, where you've got war fought on five continents, where just on the Allied side alone, uh, the United States has 60 allies. That's quite different than uh, what we see in Ukraine. But the methods of combat uh, are similar, despite obviously some new weaponry like drones, which weren't uh, imagined back in, uh, in, 19, in the 1940s. But uh, very heavy uh, emphasis on artillery. That's a World War uh, II type of war, uh, particularly an American way of war. And a number of other things that we see in Ukraine would be entirely familiar to those who fought in World War II more than 75 years ago. You're now working on the second volume of your trilogy on the combat in our Revolutionary War. How did combat change from the time of the Revolutionary War in terms of tactics, weaponry, leadership? to what you saw in World War II? Well, that's really quite different uh, over the course of almost two centuries. First of all, you've got air power in World War II, which uh, isn't even uh, dreamed about uh, by the most inventive minds in the 18th century. That changes combat considerably, both close air support by fighters and then high intensity uh, warfare from on high with uh, bomber raids of sometimes as many as a thousand planes. That's completely different. The intensity of firepower in World War II, again, is something that is far beyond anything that anyone could have imagined in the 18th century. Artillery shells are much more powerful. They've got much longer range. Naval warfare is completely different because you're relying on wind power in the 18th century, uh, which can be very, very fickle. So, you know, when it comes to the raw materials of combat, they're very different. When it comes to the essence of war, which is small unit leadership, uh, strategic leadership at the highest levels, men risking their lives, giving their lives sometimes, then they're of a piece. And I think war has been that way since the days of Thucydides. And it's not a lot different uh, in the 1940s than it had been in the 1770s in that regard. In your years writing about combat from the Revolutionary War through World War II, did you uncover one or more generals who you thought were truly military and leadership geniuses? And what about those that you might have uncovered or you think might have been overrated? Well, sure. That's the military historian's lot to some extent is to make judgments about uh, who has done well, who may be overrated. Uh, there are figures from World War II, for example, whom I think are uh, really spectacularly capable as battlefield commanders. Uh, one example would be Lucian K. Truscott, who had taught school in Oklahoma, one-room schoolhouses before joining the military uh, when he was a young man. He rises to, to four-star level. We pick him up in North Africa in 1942, where he's a one star, and he is born to lead other men in the dark of night, which is not something that, you know, you find every day on the street. Uh, there are those that are, I think, overrated. Uh, Omar Bradley, who uh, commands the, the largest force in uh, Europe for the Americans, a classmate and close friend of Dwight Eisenhower, 
he managed to outlive almost everybody after the war. He wrote not one, but uh, two uh, autobiographies. He had the last word. It, it helped to burnish his reputation. I think going back and looking at it, that reputation is somewhat overblown. The same is true of the revolution. You can look back and you can see really gifted American generals. For example, Henry Knox, 25-year-old Boston bookseller, who becomes the father of American artillery. He has a natural gift uh, for artillery. He also has a natural gift for, again, leading uh, men in the dark of night. So I think that you see, again, leadership skills emerge in the most dire circumstances where uh, the stakes couldn't be higher. Uh, and you really see someone's mettle when lives, whether it's uh, dozens of lives or in the case of someone like Eisenhower, hundreds of thousands of lives dependent on the decisions you make, the judgments you make, the skills you bring to the fight. Any regrets about you're not going to West Point where you were accepted? and not becoming a general yourself? <laughs> uh, that would be very presumptuous. No, I never, I, I had an appointment to the class of 1974, which is David Petraeus's class by chance, and he's become my good friend subsequently. Uh, I think I saved the Army a lot of trouble, frankly. I was just not in the cards for me. I thought I wanted to do that because my father had been in the Army, but I never had any regrets of uh, taking a different path, and I, I think that that was a better path for me. Okay, let's talk about the first volume of your trilogy in this part of our discussion, and that is called An Army at Dawn, The War in North Africa, 1942 to 1943. Uh, many Americans, when they think of combat during World War II, think of just the fighting in Western Europe and the Normandy invasion. But your trilogy reminds everybody that the American involvement in the European war really began in North Africa. Why did we begin fighting there? Was that our initial thought, or was it a British influence that had us fighting in North Africa? We end up in North Africa invading with the British on November 8, 1942, after a very long, months-long discussion, debate, argument about precisely how we should get involved uh, in the war against uh, the Third Reich, Hitler's Germany. The uh, impulse of uh, the American leadership almost to a man, starting with George C. Marshall, the uh, U.S. Army Chief of Staff, was to use Britain as a giant aircraft carrier, stage there, cross the English Channel, go into France. They wanted to do that uh, in 1943, if not sooner. Uh, Churchill, in particular, warned Roosevelt that that was a bad idea, that the Germans were much tougher than we thought. The Germans, of course, at this point, occupy France and most of Western Europe that it would be better if the Americans who were completely green, with green leaders, green soldiers, grew accustomed to high-intensity combat against the Wehrmacht, the German military, by attacking the periphery. And the place that uh, was proposed by Churchill and the British was North Africa. The main reason for going to North Africa, there weren't any Germans there. So after this bitter debate, it was settled by Franklin Roosevelt, our president, uh, in late July of 1942, where he signed the order saying, we will go to North Africa. He signed that order, Franklin D. Roosevelt, commander-in-chief, lest there be any doubt whence his authority derived. Eisenhower wrote in his diary, this is the blackest day in history. Uh, again, to a man, the American military leadership thought this was a sideshow, that uh, there was no point in going to North Africa when uh, what you wanted to do was to evict the Germans from occupied Europe. It turned out, I think, ultimately to be a pretty sensible decision. The 
utility of North Africa as a place for soldiers to learn to be soldiers, for leaders to learn to be combat leaders in a seven-month campaign that extended from Morocco and Algeria into Tunisia was ultimately successful. But it was not seen that way when the decision was made in the summer of 1942 by American leadership, at least. And why was Eisenhower picked to lead the American troops since he really hadn't been a combat general before? He had not. He'd actually missed World War I. He's West Point class of 1915. But along with his classmate, Omar Bradley, both of them were given other assignments. So he had never heard a shot fired in anger. He was in London when the decisions were being made about how first to enter into war in in Europe or in the Mediterranean, as it turned out. Uh, The British liked him. That's one reason. He liked the British. He did not have the anglophobia that was prevalent in uh, the the higher ranks in the U.S. uh, military, almost to a man. Again, they really detested the British, didn't trust them. Eisenhower, this kid from small town Kansas, actually liked them, trusted them. They began using words like petrol and tiffin uh, to show his solidarity with the British. So when the decision was made that we're going to have an American commander-in-chief, a theater commander for the invasion of North Africa, Eisenhower was a pretty obvious choice. George Marshall, the chief of staff, trusted him. Roosevelt didn't know him well, but he did trust uh, George Marshall's opinion. And so they picked Eisenhower. And when the invasion is uh, made on November 8th, 1942, uh, he will be in the caves of Gibraltar. That's where his first headquarters was, as this joint Anglo-American force lands in uh, Morocco and Algeria. So how did the Americans in, in northern Africa relate to the British troops that were there? You know, I think you have to say that there was some skepticism on both parts. The British, of course, at this point have been fighting for several years. They've been involved in the war against the Nazis uh, since right after the invasion of Poland in September 1939, and they have been actively involved in the war since uh, 1940. I think there's some skepticism about the Yankees and what they're going to bring to the fight. The officers, particularly at the senior uh, ranks, had some uh, misgivings about each other. Uh, This isn't entirely surprising. We've seen this in other alliances where uh, you have to get to know your comrades on your left and your right, particularly if they're from different nationalities. And it's complicated by the fact that North Africa at this point in the late fall of 1942 is controlled by the French. And the first enemy that we fight in the invasion of North Africa is not the Germans, it's not the Italians, it's the French, uh, because uh, they have made an agreement with Hitler as part of the um, armistice that was uh, declared after the invasion of France in 1940, that the French will keep their foreign colonies, including Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, but that they will promise to try to repel any invaders. And these invaders are going to turn out to be the Americans uh, and the British. So there's uh, several days of very intense fighting. There are a thousand French sailors who die on November 8th, 1942. And trying to repair that relationship, that triangular relationship between the Americans, the British, or among the Americans, the British and the French, uh, is a, a, a pretty complex diplomatic feat. So how experienced were the Germans in Northern Africa? And was Rommel their leader, a real military genius, or was he really a bit overrated? The Germans, by by this point, 
again, we're talking about late 1942, have a lot of experience. Uh, they have fought initially on the Eastern Front, beginning in Poland and, uh, and elsewhere on the Eastern Front, and then during the invasion of Western Europe, uh, including the conquest of France. So they have a, a very experienced uh, cadre of senior officers, of mid-level officers, of non-commissioned officers. The Germans are going to come into the war after this invasion begins. Initially, there are no German troops there. It's only the French. Uh, the Germans are going to be joined by the Italians because they're allies. And so they're a very formidable adversary. Again, the Americans are going to be green. The British uh, have been fighting in the uh, Egyptian desert. Uh, El Alamein is in October of 1942. So they've got some experience in fighting in North Africa, but on the other side of North Africa. Uh, and so for the Americans to get to the point where they can slug it out with the Germans and the Italians toe-to-toe is, is going to take seven months of brutal combat. Rommel had some success first as a division commander during the invasion of France. Hitler likes him. He's very telegenic. He would be telegenic if there was any television at that time. He's got a knack for publicity. Um, and he is a very capable general. There's no doubt about that. His troops uh, trust him which is important. And, you know, if he's a military genius, it's a genius that comes and goes, as it so often does in military affairs. We're going to see him when he's very, very good in North Africa. We're going to see him when he's not so good in North Africa. It's important to remember, I think, that ultimately, after seven months of combat, the Germans and the Italians are going to be completely crushed. They're going to be evicted from the entire continent. Rama will have left by that time, but he is at least partly responsible for the lack of success in uh, holding off the, uh, the Allied forces as they're streaming into Tunisia. That will remain the same uh, you know, for the rest of the war. We're going to see Rommel again in Normandy. Again, we'll see Rommel at times when he's very good. At times, we'll see Rommel when he's not particularly good. So genius can be a fitful thing for a general. What was Eisenhower's decision or strategy or tactics that enabled him to actually win in the Northern African theater? Did he one thing that he did, or did he have good people under him like Patton and Bradley? Well, certainly uh, Eisenhower had good people under him. And it's not just the names you know, like Patton and Omar Bradley, but it's on down the line. Again, these are leaders who have not led in combat for the most part. Patton has some experience uh, in World War I. There are others who have World War I experience, but that's 20 years earlier. Uh, they were uh, relatively junior at that time. And learning to command a, a, a division, a corps, an army, uh, takes some practice. It takes some getting used to. It's not something that everyone is capable of doing. Eisenhower has a good eye for subordinate talent. Uh, his boss back in Washington, George Marshall, the chief of staff, has a, a good eye for subordinate talent. He's the one who's largely picking uh, the senior commanders. Eisenhower's uh, probably his greatest gift as a commander is as a uh, an allied commander. Again, he gets along with the British. This is a, an international force that he's going to be commanding in North Africa. It's going to get more and more international as the war gets bigger uh, in Italy and then in Western Europe. 
and his ability to keep the horses moving in the same direction, keeping uh, national vainglory to a minimum, keeping generals of different nationalities who don't necessarily trust or like each other from causing the train to go off the rails. This is something that he's particularly gifted at. And we see this beginning uh, with his theater command uh, in North Africa. So uh, in the end, the Americans and the British prevail in Northern Africa. How many Americans died in the African campaign? Was it very many compared to what we expected or fewer than we expected? Well, the uh, total uh, Allied casualties in North Africa from the invasion in November 1942 to the German and Italian surrender in May of 1943, about 70,000 casualties. Uh, The American casualties, there were 1,000 in the invasion of Morocco and Algeria, and then there are about 18,000 more during the rest of that campaign. That includes about 2,700 killed in action, 6,500 missing in action. Most of them will be declared dead eventually. Um, the, the Germans and the Italians, they have about 12,000 killed in action altogether uh, during the seven-month campaign. So by the standards of Western European combat, it's not an enormous number of casualties but it's not nothing. And Churchill will say, what did we get for these casualties? Well, one continent has been redeemed in his phrase because uh, Africa was completely purged of of Axis forces at that point. And it also gave combat experience to a number of American divisions and British divisions that were very important when we move north across the Mediterranean. Okay, so when the campaign in Africa is completed, you then focus on what the Americans are doing next. And your, your second volume in the trilogy is called The Day of Battle, The War in Sicily and Italy, 1943 to 1944. So after Africa, why did the Americans just not go into Western Europe at that time? Why did they um, kind of start in Southern Europe? And why did they actually not go into the Italian mainland? Why did they go to Sicily? Well, as with the uh, debate before the decision was made to go to North Africa, there was fairly intense debate as the African campaign was coming to a conclusion in the spring of 1943. As George Marshall correctly predicted, once you're in the Mediterranean, it becomes a a kind of sump. It's hard to get out once you're in. Uh, Shipping is the narrow bottleneck through which all strategic decision making is made in World War II. And there are simply not enough ships available to move what basically is a million-man force from North Africa out through the Mediterranean, through the Straits of Gibraltar, and around to have them stage in Britain. So the path of least resistance at this point uh, is to go directly north. Sicily is about 100 miles across the Mediterranean from North Africa. The reason they go to Sicily rather than the toe of the boot of Italy, for example, is that it is useful as a giant aircraft carrier. It's the largest island in the Mediterranean. It's about 100 miles from east to west. Uh, There are four German divisions there and a number of Italian divisions. And so the belief is that if you can take Sicily fairly expeditiously, then that gives you a platform for going into mainland Italy, which is exactly what will happen. So the invasion of Sicily takes place on June 10th, 1943. Again, it is an Anglo-American invasion force. Uh, George Patton commanding the American contingent, uh, Bernard Montgomery commanding the British contingent, all under the 
overall command of Dwight Eisenhower. So Bernard Montgomery was an easy guy to get along with for all the Americans? Yeah, he was uh, a real uh, cream puff. You know, he's a, a, a capable general. He's going to be a field marshal before long. Churchill knows that he's politically untouchable because he has been the victor at El Alamein with the British uh, army, the eighth army that he commands, faces the uh, German army under Rommel at El Alamein in Egypt in late 1942. It's really the first British uh, victory. It's a bit of a tarnished victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. Uh, he's a national hero in Britain. And again, he's politically untouchable. So he's going to take his eighth army into Sicily under Eisenhower He's a real difficult character. He's self-absorbed. There are historians today who think he's somewhere on the spectrum, that he's got Asperger's and he's got some uh, issues that make it difficult for him to hear social cues. Uh, he's certainly full of himself. There's no doubt about that. And he's got some resentment about being under overall American command. The reason the Americans are commanding with Eisenhower is that the Americans have a preponderance. We are not only the uh, biggest industrial power in the world at this point, uh, we have a far bigger military than the British do. And Churchill has acceded to this reality uh, right from the get-go, acknowledging that the overall commander-in-chief must be an American. And this sticks in Montgomery's crawl to some extent, and it's going to stick there for the rest of the war. So were the Americans in Italy fighting the Italians or are they fighting the Germans? Well, initially, when we uh, go into Sicily, there are both German and Italian divisions there. The preponderance of the defensive forces in Sicily are Italian, fighting for their own uh, territory. As the Sicilian campaign comes to an end, after about six weeks of uh, heavy fighting in Sicily, the next step is going to be to jump basically to the Italian mainland. It's only two miles across the Strait of Messina from the eastern coast of Sicily to the toe of the boot of Italy. The British are going to land there. The Americans are going to land further north, uh, just below uh, Naples at Salerno. And as this is happening, and this is going to be in early September 1943, there's basically a coup in Italy. There's a successful attempt to oust Mussolini. He's captured at first. Mussolini is then freed in a, a daring commando raid that uh, Hitler sponsors. But the Italians fundamentally are going to switch sides as of September 1943. There's going to be a rump fascist state of Italians under Mussolini who are going to continue to fight with the Germans for the rest of the war. But in the main, the Italians are going to come onto the side of the angels. They're going to join the allies. So where we've started fighting the Italians in the Italian campaign were going to end up being allies with them uh, through 1944 and into 1945. Okay. So uh, in the end, uh, what happens to the Italian government? Does the government itself fall? The government falls. There's a, a bit of a comedy of errors where it's not clear who's in charge. The main ambition of Eisenhower and the allied governments is to uh, have Mussolini out of the picture, to try to get as many Italian soldiers to switch sides, to have the Italians uh, providing the kind of uh, resources that are useful when you're going to fight your way a thousand miles up the, uh, the boot of Italy. 
and the negotiations that go on in the fall of 1943 uh, all lead to some success on those scores. The Italians are going to uh, provide us with uh, assistance as we, the Western allies, uh, fight the Germans. And it's almost exclusively now just the Germans up the Italian boot. How many Americans died in the uh, Italian campaign? Well, the Americans sent 750,000 troops into Italy. 120,000 of them became casualties. 23,501 were killed in action. It's uh, a real bloodletting. The Italian campaign, the campaign to liberate Italy, lasts 608 days. There are 312,000 Allied casualties of all sorts. So you can see the Americans have more than a third of those. German casualties in Italy are about 435,000, including 48,000 killed in action. We are uh, allied over the course of the Italian campaign with the Poles, not just the British, the Poles, the Brazilians. There's a Palestinian unit there. Uh, It really becomes an an international force, all of them fighting, uh, dying, sustaining casualties, Uh, Italy is one of the most brutal campaigns in all of World War II, partly because of topography, partly because the Germans uh, are are very good at fighting defensively, partly because fighting in the Apennine Mountains uh, is brutal in the winter, and we're going to fight there for two winters. Uh, One soldier in the 36th Division, which had been the Texas National Guard, said, I was scared for 23 months. I saw the best troops in the world cut down and replaced three or four times. And that's what the campaign in Italy was like. So we've been in discussion with Rick Atkinson about the first two volumes of his trilogy on the liberation in Europe. The first volume, An Army at Dawn, The War in North Africa, 1942 to 1943, won the Pulitzer Prize. When you won the Pulitzer Prize, did somebody just call you up and say, guess what? Or how do they let you know you win the Pulitzer Prize? (laughs) Uh, I happen to be in Iraq. Uh, This was April of uh, 2003. I was in Iraq with the 101st Airborne Division as a reporter. I'd gone back to the Washington Post to go to Iraq with David Petraeus, who was then the new commander of the 101st Airborne as a major general. It was a Friday night. Uh, I was on my satellite phone back to Washington talking about the day story. And uh, the executive editor of the Washington Post came on the phone and said, well, we just weren't sure when we could get in touch with you again. So we thought we'd tell you, uh, you won the Pulitzer Prize for history. So that's how I learned it. And uh, it was late at night. It was about midnight in uh, Iraq in Najaf, which is uh, south of Baghdad where there'd been a fairly uh, uh, intense scrap between the Americans and Iraqis. So there was uh, no one to tell, no one to share it with at that point. Uh, But that's how I found out. You couldn't call David Petraeus and say, guess what? I I just won the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) I want to let the commanding general get his rest. I saw him the next morning. I, uh, I, I told him what had happened, and uh, he, was, uh, he was very gracious and very pleased. And, uh, and we went on with the, with the war. The 101st went from Najaf to other Shiite towns uh, farther north and uh, continued fighting uh, into Baghdad. Well, the second volume, The Day of Battle, The War in Sicily and Italy, was also an excellent book in my view. When you did not win the Pulitzer for that, did you get upset? 
<laughs> no, I know that uh, you're very lucky to win it once. I've had the good fortune to have won it three times, for twice for journalism. And uh, no, I didn't get upset at all. I was pleased at the response to that book, the reaction to it. Uh, pleased to have uh, made my way through two-thirds of this uh, challenge that I've set for myself to to write a, a trilogy. And and uh, and by that point, I'm I'm working on volume three. So uh, no, I had no uh, no hard feelings at all about. It. So we're going to talk in our next part of our conversation uh, about uh, the third volume, uh, the guns at last light, the war in Western Europe, 1944 to 1945, which was the number one New York Times bestseller when it came out. Um, but thank you very much for an interesting conversation on your two first volumes in the trilogy. David, thank you so much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.